Hey, if you're, if you're new, uh, what we're doing uh, here in this sermon series entitled People and Promises as we are jumping into the Gospel of Matthew. And there's uh, an interesting amount of verses, 17 to be exact, at the beginning of the book of Matthew uh, that you may uh, be confused about, that you may uh, just kind of skip over it because you think it's nonsensical or, or irrelevant to uh, your day-to-day life. And what we want to do here at Compass Bible Church is to show you that whatever the Bible has to say is very important, even if it's just a list of names. And so what we have ventured to do uh, in this beginning series, jumping into the Gospel of Matthew, is to show you exactly why the genealogy is even there. Like, why it doesn't matter uh, that the uh, Apostle Matthew has written a genealogy from Abraham all the way to Jesus. Like, what does that have to do with you and I and our faith, and what does that have to do with all of the Bible? And we want to answer that simple question through uh, this sermon series. And so uh, if you haven't already, I want to open you up to Matthew chapter 1, 5 through 6. We're going to jump into that. And while you're there, uh, how many of you uh, love DIY projects? Show of hands, DIY projects. Okay, how many of you loathe DIY projects? Yeah, that, that's me. I'm on that one. Right. DIY, if you don't know what that means, which you probably should if you watch TV, uh, do-it-yourself, right? Do-it-yourself projects. There was actually a DIY project uh, me and Pastor Evan decided to do here at the church. Uh, if you, <laughs> you already know that's going to end up bad. Uh, <laughs> If you haven't known this building, we haven't been in there very long. We remodeled it, and uh, a couple of months ago, we were in one of the kids' classrooms, and in our minds, there was this uh, pipe that it was a conduit in our mind, an empty conduit sticking about two feet outside the wall, and we're like, okay, you don't want to give kids things to pull on or trip over, and so this conduit was sticking out of the wall, and we said, you know what? Why don't we just cut that bad boy you know, away and then cap it, and so it's kind of flush with the wall, and we're like, that's going to be a great idea, because again, we just thought it was going to be an empty conduit you know, because there's conduits all over this building. Uh, And as we began sawing, there was this moment of utter distress when water just started spewing everywhere. And what we thought was an empty conduit uh, happened to be a water line. And uh, luckily enough, I knew where the uh, water shutoff valve was for the, the building. So I ran down as quickly as I could and I went and reached through and turned off the water. And the rest of our day uh, ended up being Home Depot trips and water repairs. Uh, but the point of that is, you know, all we had to do was look at the blueprints to see what had been ran throughout the building, right? I mean, we have, we, we literally have, we just remodeled the building. We have plenty of blueprints throughout the building. We could have opened up and said, well, what do we have running? We got plumbing running here. We got electrical running here. If we had just followed it and got up to that room and said, you know what? That's not an empty conduit. That's a water line. It has saved us from, from a lot of problems. And in your own life, so many times, uh, when it comes to your faith and when it comes to what God's word says, often we like to do it ourselves, don't we? We like the DIY, we're DIY Christians, uh, which isn't a good thing, right? It's not a good idea to do everything yourself when the Bible actually tells you the opposite, that you ought to rely on God, that God works through his power and not yours, that he asks you to follow his will and not your own. And so many times we get in a lot of trouble uh, in our faith because we are DIY Christians. 
And this morning, my prayer and my hope is that uh, you'll stop being a DIY Christian, that you will be the kind of Christian who trusts in God's plan, and that instead of doing it yourself, you would step into his plan. Like, don't you like it? If you're like me, you like it when uh, you get this box delivered to your house, and it has directions and all the tools you're going to need right in the box, right? And you just follow it, and you build, you build whatever you're trying to build because all the plans are there, and it tells you step by step, right? That's the kind of God that we serve who says, listen, you don't have to go figure it out on your own. He's figured it out, and he has the plan. He just wants you to walk in it. Now, why is that important? Because maybe you are one of those DIY people. Well, here's the problem. If you are a DIY Christian, you have to understand something fundamental about the Christian faith. Is that this, that God has never promised to fulfill your plans, right? We have to at least come to that conclusion that God has never one time promised to fulfill your plans. What he is 100% of the time committed to is fulfilling his plans, And every time in Scripture you may have somebody speaking of themselves as God fulfilling their plans, uh, it's always in the context of his plans. You guys love, right? We love Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans that I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope in a future. But whose plans were they? His plans, right? And so we have to understand on the onset of, of our life that it's God's plans that he promises to fulfill. And maybe, perhaps, hopefully, that has given you a whole different mindset. Even right now, you're like, that's why my life is going the way it's going. Because I've been a DIY Christian. I've been doing it myself all the time. When God's told me to walk in his plans. And I've been walking in mine all along. Duh. Like, so hopefully, you've already everything in your life has already been changed over the last three minutes. But if not, hold on. <laughs> is that funny? Uh, <laughs> If not, hold on, we're going to jump into God's word, and we're going to look at the breadth of what we see in Matthew 1, 5 through 6. These names have history tied behind them. These names have God's faithfulness and his plans that are carried out tied to them. And so when you look at these names, I want you to think like a first century Jew, right? I want you to put their sandals on your feet and start thinking, oh, when I see those names, it brings back remembrance of God's faithfulness, of his steadfastness, and a lot of times my stubbornness and inability to follow. God. Like when you read these names, those things should come to mind. And if they don't, that's why you're here. And that's why we're going to learn about these things because this genealogy tells us so much about what we need to know about the character of God. And so why don't we pick it up? We see in Matthew 1, 5 and 6, and Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Well, that puts us smack dab in the beginning of the book of Joshua, because that's when Solomon was around. So uh, at the beginning of uh, the book of Joshua, what we're seeing, and I want you to take a lot of notes. If I say write it down, write it down. It'll help you uh, remember this as we continue the series. We get to the beginning of Joshua, and remember, Joshua is where uh, they begin going into the promised land, the land that God had promised Abraham in Genesis. Now they're about to go take that land that had been promised to them. And what's important for that is uh, we understand why they're going into this land, because it was a land of God's promise. It wasn't them in their own DIY life going in there. It was God's promised land to them. And we see that in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and you can jot that down, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Uh, when uh, God had promised Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to a land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation. You see, there are a couple of things needed to, to become a nation. Right? You need land, 
You need leaders and you need laws, okay? Israel had land and leaders, if you want to call some of them that, uh, but they didn't have land, okay? And they needed land. And so to be a nation, they needed land. So God had promised them land. And so now you see them on the precipice of going into the promised land. And that's where uh, we pick up Moses has died. And now the mantle of leadership has been given to Joshua, or Yeshua, right, in Hebrew, which means the Lord saves. Which if you know uh, your Greek and Hebrew and all that good stuff, or if you've been here for a couple of weeks, Yeshua is actually Jesus' name. Jesus is Greek, okay? It's a Greek translation of the name Yeshua. And so Joshua's name is the Lord saves. Jesus' name is also the Lord saves. And so just a connection you can make from the Old Testament to the New, that when Jesus came on the scene in his genealogy, you could think back to, oh, the Lord saves in Joshua and conquers. The same Lord is saving here in the person of Jesus Christ. So nevertheless, we see in the first four chapters of Joshua, uh, God preparing Israel to take the promised land. And so that's what we see in the first four chapters. Uh, and they're preparing them. They're getting them ready to go. Uh, and uh, we see in chapter 2, two spies get sent over into Jericho. Remember, before the wilderness, 12 spies went, right? And only two came back and gave a good report. Do you remember who those two people were? Joshua and Caleb, right? We had two people come in and give good reports. Uh, this time around, uh, 40 years later, they sent two spies in. They learned from their first mistake. There's only two people with a good report. We only need to send two people in this time around. So they send them in, uh, and they go and they spy out Jericho. And while they're there, the officials and the military has heard that they are coming to spy out the city. And so they send out uh, some people, some officials, to go find them, to capture them. And while they're there, uh, there is a prostitute named Rahab who lives in the city wall, which was a very common thing in that time to have um, dwellings built into the wall because they were massive. Uh, And they found her and she found them and she hid them from those who were trying to come capture them and kill them. And so that is where Rahab confesses to these Israelites. He says, listen, I've heard about you guys, and I've heard of the God that you guys serve, and that's the kind of God I want to serve. And Rahab says, I've seen, I've heard how he led you away from the Egyptians, and you conquered them, and I heard how he parted the Red Sea, and you guys just trotted right through that thing like there was nothing ever there. And I I remember how God had protected you guys, and he had led you to conquer kings even when you were out in the wilderness, and I know that God has given you this land. That's some pretty good theology for a pagan Canaanite prostitute, isn't it? I mean, that woman knew who was coming into their land. And she said, I want to make a covenant with you. And she says, I want to protect you, and I'm going to hide you, and I'm going to get you out of here alive if you will only protect my family, and and I will come and be your people and be a part of your nation. That's important because when you look at Matthew 1, right, the genealogy, that's what we're talking about this morning, you see the name Rahab. In verse 5. That's important because, number one, uh, pagans weren't allowed into the, into the family of Israel. Right? We don't see that throughout much throughout history. And it was very uncommon for an unclean pagan woman to be included in such a noble genealogy. Right? She was a prostitute. And if Matthew, which is what Matthew's trying to do, he's trying to prove that Jesus is the Messiah in this genealogy, why would you include a pagan prostitute? Because God is trying to prove a point that if people will turn away from their life, 
turn away from their idols and turn to God like Rahab did. Turned away from her life of prostitution, turned away from following after her own idols and follow the God of Israel, he would redeem them. And he would adopt them into his family and he would make them his own. And she is there as a representative for the rest of history that God redeems and that God saves and that God takes people, regardless of what situation they're in, if they would trust in him. And you see that playing out perfectly in the second, third, fourth, fifth chapters of the book of Joshua. And so uh, Rahab does this. The two spies get out alive. And then uh, you then see Israel preparing to go in and taking over and conquering Jericho. But before we do, uh, Israel gets uh, all ready to get prepared. And Joshua does a couple of things before he sends them in. He takes all the males and circumcises them. It's a problem if you're trying to go conquer some people. Probably not the first thing you want to do before you run into a land and circumcise all the males. Uh, But there was a reason why Joshua had done that. Because Joshua was renewing and remembering the covenant that God had made with Abraham. And part of that Abraham, the sign of that covenant, was circumcision. And so Abraham was circumcised. The uh, previous generation that died in the wilderness, the ones who disobeyed at Kadesh Barnea, uh, they were all circumcised, but the new generation had never been circumcised. And so Joshua says, whoa, 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 before we start doing anything in the name of the Lord, we need to make sure that we're faithful to the promises and the covenant of God. And so before we go and take this land that God has given us, we're going to honor the promises of God. And so all the males got circumcised, and they waited, and they all got healed up, and then they went in, and they conquered Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. In this Joshua, uh, Joshua 5 and 6, that's where Solomon comes in, right? If you're looking to where, where does Solomon play into the history of Israel, this is him. He's part of the new generation. He was one of the male leaders who got circumcised, who went in and stormed Jericho. No, didn't storm because they marched around. Like The, the whole point of the idea of Jericho was God says, I'm going to give you Jericho. You're not going to storm in and try to take it, right? They marched around it for seven days, once a day. So they marched around it. Uh, you know, went back home, you know, sipped some tea, and then woke up the next day, went and marched around again. On the seventh day, they marched around seventh time, they blew some trumpets, the walls fell. Like, it was all God, and God was proving to Israel that this has nothing to do with you, it has everything to do with me and my faithfulness and my promise keeping. And so that's what they did, and we see them entering Jericho and conquering Jericho. Now, what you need to know about Jericho is Jericho is like the Houston of Canaan, right? Uh, it was a big city, uh, really important, and it's right in the middle of the promised land. And so so what you see there is they're already taken over one of the biggest places that you can conquer, and it was all because of God's promises and God's faithfulness and their trust that God would deliver them. So you see that in Joshua 5 and 6, and then the rest of Joshua can be put into two categories. The first category is simply this. In Joshua 6 through 12, you have the conquest of Canaan. Okay, and you got to remember, uh, all of Joshua takes place over the span of 32 years, okay, about 32 years. The conquest, that is them uh, going to war with all the kings and all of the peoples, took about seven years. And so what you need to see, I have a little nifty map up here uh, for you guys, if it'll work. Huh. Can you guys go to the next map for me? There you go. 
not sure it's not working. Okay, and so what you see in this map, if you look down at the bottom, you see this little horseshoe. This was their failed attempt 40 years ago at Kadesh Barnea. Uh, and then next they go over here, and this is where we're picking up as they're over here on the east side of the Jordan. They've crossed over to Jericho. They're taking that over. And this is called the central campaign, right? You've got to think military terms. This was the central campaign here, Gilgal, uh, Ai, Bethel. Uh, and then from there, they divide and conquer, which is where you get that principle in war. They divided and conquered the central campaign. They have a southern campaign and a northern campaign. And so from chapters 6 to 12, it's all about the central, southern, and northern campaign. So if you're trying to make ends of uh, Joshua, that's how you're going to do it. You're going to understand that whole part of that scripture is all about the conquest of Canaan. And then the rest of the book of Joshua, verses, chapters 13 through 21, is all about the division of the land. Because remember, the promise was land, right? The promise of Abraham was, I'm going to give you a land, I'm going to make you a great nation. So they had laws, they had a leader, and now they have land. And now they've got to draw the lines of that land, right? We all have borders, we all have property. And so the rest of Joshua is all about which tribe gets what land. And we talked a lot about the tribes a couple of weeks ago, but here is a good uh, small map of the allotments that they received that was given to them in the inheritance that God had promised all of them. It is worth taking a moment to, uh, as we look at this, it just seems like in five minutes that I gave you 30 years of successful uh, conquering of land uh, of Israel, but the reality is there's a lot of uh, ups and downs in the history of Israel, and there's a lot that we need to understand about the covenant faithfulness and covenant remembrance of the people of Israel. Something that Joshua did, which is one of his greatest uh, features, one of his greatest characteristics, is he always remembered God. Right Before they even went out to conquer, he had circumcised all of the people all of the males. And before that, or after that, he also celebrated the Passover, which was something they were commanded to do in Exodus, if you guys remember that a couple of weeks ago. So before they ever even conquered land, he said, we're going to remember God and his covenant. We're going to celebrate the Passover when God delivered us from Egypt in the same way that he's going to deliver us now, and we're going to conquer the land that he has promised us. Do you see what he did? Before they ever did anything, he said, this is why we're here, and this is what we're doing. He does that in chapters 5. He does it in chapter 8. And one I want to turn you to is uh, Joshua chapter 24. If you have your Bible, I hope you do, I want you to turn to Joshua chapter 24. This is important because I think if this is something missing in your own life as a Christian, uh, this may be one of those areas that you realize there's a lot of room for growth. And there's a lot of room to say, wow, I really haven't been doing that. And I know I messed up. And it's time for me to begin remembering the Lord. Because Joshua, throughout the whole process, realized that this isn't my victory. This is the Lord's victory. We are the Lord's army. This isn't my army. And so many times in our own lives, we spend so much time making it about me. Me, 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 I, I, I. That we forget that we don't own ourselves. We've been bought with a price. And we are not ours. We don't belong to ourselves. I don't have a will. He has a will. And I walk in his will. And if we forget that, uh, you're going to end up a lot like the judges, which we'll talk about in a couple of minutes. We want to be like Joshua, although Joshua imperfect, right? Joshua didn't get to bear the, Joshua didn't lead them into ultimate victory because he still disobeyed and not conquering all the people because the only hero in the Bible is God, right? Joshua is not the hero. Moses isn't the hero. Abraham's not the hero. The hero is God. And, but with that being said, we can look at the characteristic of Joshua and say something he did that we must do is start remembering the Lord. There's something he does before he dies at the end of Joshua. 
And he does this in chapter 24. Joshua gathered up all the people of Israel, and Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made offspring and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. You already noticed something. I want you to notice two things. Number one, Joshua, at the end of his life, he says, you guys need to remember the Lord. You guys need to remember what God had done. And just so you guys get a little bit of time period, like we did Genesis all the way to Joshua in like two or three weeks. I want you just to notice what, what Joshua says here. Long ago, your father. So you need to understand there are there's thousand years that already separate where Joshua is and when God came to Abraham. And so you got to see all the years of distance of God's working, because if sometimes when you look at scripture, you're so quick to believe, well, all that stuff happened just so fast. And God did all these big things every day. And every day people were walking on clouds and there were pillars of smoke running around and there were burning bushes over there. And there were rivers that were just wide open and people were running right through them. And it's like, that, that's not the story of the Bible. The story of the Bible is there are very few times in Scripture where God is doing crazy, miraculous things. As a matter of fact, the, the general rule was that not a lot was happening, but a lot was expected out of faith. Right? Faithfulness was expected, and miracles were the exception to the rule. And there's proof of it right here. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Jordan. And then I took your father Abraham, and I gave them Isaac, Jacob, and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterwards I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers and your chariots uh, with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried out to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand. And you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel. And he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his hand, and you went over the Jordan, and you came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you. Remember, this was 30-something years ago. And also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And I gave them into your hand, and I sent hornets before you, which drove them out. The two kings of the Amorites also, it was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you the land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them, and you eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. You, you see so much of what has happened here. Like, number one, what we need to understand is Joshua understood that a lot of people in Israel didn't know the whole story. A lot of these people are not uh, the second generation. They weren't, even, they weren't even alive during most of the wilderness wandering. They, they didn't cross the Jordan. They didn't cross the Red Sea. I mean, all of this stuff, uh, Joshua is saying, you need to remember. And how does this apply to you so you can, eyes can perk back up? How many of you parents talk to your kids about the promises of the Lord and the faithfulness of God in past generations? Like, how many of you are bringing your children up and saying, you know what the Lord did in my life? The Lord saved me from my sins. I mean, do your children even know your testimony? How can your children look for a testimony and look for faith when they're not seeing their parents telling them? 
Right? And how in our churches, if the pastor's not preaching the promises of God from the past and looking at how they apply to now, how can we have faithful, fruitful churches? You see what I'm saying? We have to understand that Joshua is doing something that every Christian should be doing, and it's recounting the faithfulness of God and his goodness and his faithfulness and his promises so that as they prepare to take steps forward, they move forward in faith, trusting and acknowledging the will of God in all things. But we have to be doing this in our own lives. And then as parents, as leaders, right? I don't, if you're single in here, whether or not where you are in life, you have to come to this conclusion that he makes in the following verses. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods of your fathers that you serve beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers be in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites whose land you dwell in now. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You see, you know that verse, you love that verse, you have that verse in your kitchen. But do you know why it was there? Because we must understand that God is faithful and we must decide who we're going to serve, who we're going to live for. And Joshua knew that and he put it before his people before he died. And listen, you're going to be tempted and you're going to be motivated to serve other gods and to go after other things. And you must remember that this is the Lord's land We are the Lord's people, and this is the Lord's promises, and we must walk in the promises of God, not my own DIY projects. And because of that, because of Joshua's mostly successful leadership, God honored the faith of Israel. And you can put that as point number one. You should expect God to honor your faith. You should expect God to honor your faith. And we see that in the life of Rahab, don't we? Right? We see it was Rahab's faith. And as a matter of fact, when you go into the Gospels, what does Jesus say every time, every time that he heals someone, what does he say? Right? It was your faith that made you well. Right? It was your faith that you are healed. Right? Uh, in Ephesians, it's by faith that you are saved right? through grace. Right? To understand, like, it is faith has always been the answer. People ask, well, how did people get saved in the Old Testament? The same way people get saved in the New Testament, by faith. Right? It's by faith we're saved. And we see the salvation given by faith and trust. And so we can expect God to honor their faith. As a matter of fact, you can jot down Hebrews 11, verse 6. Hebrews 11, verse 6. It says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him. If we're not going to be faithful, right? If our lives aren't going to be faith, if we're not going to follow God in faith, it's impossible to please God if we're not full of faith. And that's something we should drive home. It's like, whatever you're doing doesn't proceed from faith, it is sin. That's what the Bible says, right? Whatever doesn't proceed from faith, like your whole life ought to revolve around faith, making steps of faith, not steps of faith because whatever you think is going to happen that make you successful is hard to do and scary, and so you're going to do it. That's not, that's personal faith. That's DIY faith. I'm talking about the faith that leads to godliness, faith that leads to fruitfulness, faith that says not my will, but your will. That's what I'm talking about. It's faithfulness here. I'm not asking you to go start your new venture on your own DIY time. I'm saying that faith upon God pleases him, and he honors that. So what it keeps saying right here. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that God exists. There's a good requisite. And that, and that he rewards those who seek him. Like, there's your promise of 
the rewards of faith, that he rewards those who seek him, those who are faithful toward him. Like, I, just think about it practically. Well, what do you mean God rewards? Yes, God rewards. We're going to talk about all those good things. Uh, let me just give you a practical application of that, right? Uh, you're married in here, okay? Uh, tell me the benefits of your marriage when you apply the principles found in Scripture. Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. We're applying those in our lives. Like, how, how many of us have unfruitful marriages and we sit in our chairs right now and we say, my marriage really, really struggles. And you ask the question, are you applying God's truth to your life? Are you literally opening up scripture and say, God, what does your word say about marriage? And then you're applying those things? Because probably right now we're not. And we see what? We see the fruits of our unfaithfulness to God. But there are many of you in here who can look at this scripture and say, sure enough, in my marriage, I've submit to God. I submit to his word. There's a lot of things the Bible says about husband, being a husband that I don't love applying every day of my life. But I know it's faithful. And I know it's true. And I know it's good. And then my marriage benefits. It is blessed. God honors the faithfulness to his word that I have in my marriage. And then guess what? Your marriage is blessed. And it's fruitful. That's just a practical application of the principle that God honors your faith. One of the biggest problems is, is we, uh, I think, in our Protestant beliefs, this is a sidebar, by the way, uh, and I can do that because I'm up here. So, uh, <laughs> uh, so many times I think we like, scare ourselves to do good and to be faithful uh, because of somehow we, we got to prove to people that you don't, work for your, you don't work for your faith. It's like, yeah, but your life is falling apart because you don't understand what the, work, what the, what the word says about faithfulness and stewardship. Like, you've all been given a stewardship, especially if you're saved in here. You've been given a stewardship in Christ, and you must be a good steward of that. And so, like, stop saying that you don't have to do things. You must do things, right? A, a requisite of being a Christian is that you do things, right? That you live a faithful life, that you are a good steward of what God has given you. As a matter of fact, you all know this scripture, to whom much is given, much is expected, right? Just principles of stewardship. And what I'm saying is, Feel the freedom to run hard after God because you can when you're in his will because you know God's going to honor your faith in him. Now, the biggest problem we're going to run into is like you're not living for him right now. And so you know that everything you're pursuing right now is a DIY project and it's going to fail. And so you're kind of stuck because you, you, you don't have enough courage to step forward because you know it's going to fail. Uh, but you don't have any foundation to step forward in faith with God. And it's like, great, the Bible has answers for that. It's called tear down your idols, tear down your bells, tear them to shred, put them aside, and follow God. And now you're on a good foundation. Start walking that out and watch God honor the, the fact that you are walking in his will. Rahab is a great example of it. We have another great example of it in a little bit in Ruth. But we must be faithful to God. On the other hand, we have a great account of Israel doing a lot of DIY projects on their own, and we see that in the book of Judges. So we just finished Joshua. Now we're in the book of Judges. Joshua covered a time span of about 32 years, give or take. Uh, Judges covers a history of about 330 years of history. So it's quite the difference. It's 10% of the time. So 90% more time spent in Judges than in Joshua. It's just for you to know as you're thinking through, as you're reading the Old Testament, how long these things took place. And so what you see in the book of Judges uh, is uh, Israel's DIY projects, right? Their faith in themselves, doing what was right in their own eyes and not following after God. Really the antithesis of the life of Joshua and Caleb. Uh, and as a matter of fact, Josh, uh, Judges 2 
tells us everything we need to know. If you, if you maybe can get there quicker than I can, in Judges chapter 2, tells you everything you need to know about what was going on in the time of the Judges. All right, Judges 2. Uh, here's, what, here's what was going on in, in the book of Judges, and here's why we see 330 years of just absolute distress and disarray in the life of Israel. Now, the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim, and he said, I brought you out from Egypt, and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. That sounds like the promise of Abraham. And God said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land. You shall break down their altars. But that was the problem, wasn't it? They went in to the, to the promised land, and after they had pretty much taken it over, they had left all of these different clans and all of these different peoples to live among them. But that wasn't the promise that God made them, was it? God said, you must drive them all out. I don't want their idols. I don't want their gods. I don't want their beliefs to permeate into your, you because you must be faithful to me alone. And then as we get in the middle of it, Israel stopped conquering. They stopped taking over these countries. And so that's where we land. And that's why it says this. But you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say this. I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your side. And their God shall be a snare to you. And so for the next 300 years, what we see is all of these groups and peoples that Israel didn't drive out, they then become thorns in the sides of Israel, and they draw them to idol worship, to sin, to debauchery, and all of the worldly sin seeps into this people of God. And because of that, you then have this cycle of uh, sin of uh, despair and of deliverance. And it happened six times through a cycle of 12 different judges. And so you see 12 judges in the book of Judges. And you need to think of a judge not as a person that looks fancy sitting on a high seat. Uh, a judge was basically a deliverer, like a military leader. And so kind of a governor in peacetime, but like a, a ruler, like warrior leader in times of trouble and distress. And so that's who these people were. Uh, and if you add up all of the dates, and this may be good for you if you're like really studying, and I hope you do if you come to church here and if you're a Christian that you're studying the Bible. If you add up all the numbers of as the judges were uh, ruling, you're going to end up with 410 years, okay? And But you just said, well, Pastor Hayden, didn't you say it was 330? Well, it was because there's a map up here I want to show you that shows you that this, there it goes, there it goes. Uh, all of those white boxes, you may not be able to read the names, but here's what you need to know. Those are where all the judges were from. Remember, Israel was 12 tribes. And so in those tribes, they all had different things going on. And so you had different judges that overlap and that spent time uh, leading at different times in their respective territories. And so although we can add up to 410 years of uh, biblical history, it's actually 330 years because a lot of these people overlapped. If you don't know who the judges were, you probably know Samson, right? Gideon, you know, those kind of people. Those were some of the judges that we see uh, in the Old Testament. And this map is just for you to see that, hey, a lot of these people, like you're so like me, uh, trained to read the Bible in a narrative form, in a chronological, like this must have happened before this, this must have happened before that. But when you read the Old Testament, there are times you can't do that because it hops back and forth. You'll see that in Kings and Chronicles uh, and uh, some of the prophets as well. But this is another example in Joshua that a lot of these things coincided around the same amount of time. Why is that important? Because you're going to study this, and I don't want to get you con confused. Good. 
All right, so we see that, and so in Judges 3 to 16, it's really a cycle of, uh, of this 330 years of just sin and God delivering, sin, God delivering, sin, God delivering. Uh, and then in Judges 17 through 21, it gets really, really, really bad. And I, what I mean by this is there's things that you're going to read in those chapters that are going to offend you, they're going to upset you, that are going to kind of break your heart because sin had gotten that bad in Israel uh, that these real things were happening uh, which just shows how much Israel did not remember the promises of God. And so idolatry and sin increase exponentially uh, in Judges 17 through 21. Uh, so much so that in the final chapters of Judges, in Judges 21, chapter, uh, verse 25, uh, it says this, that in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. I mean, that's, that's the kind of life that was being lived. No one was remembering the Lord. No one was faithful to God. Everyone was doing DIY projects. It was just all about them. Uh, and at the beginning of Judges, this is, how, uh, this is how much they forgot the Lord. It says this, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God, and they served the Baals and the Asheroth. Isn't that, the, isn't that what God said was going to happen? You've left these other gods in, in here. You've left these other sins around you. And of course, they're creeping into your life. Sidebar. Okay, you too, right? When you, when you play around with sin and you let sin hang around, what's going to happen? It's going to infiltrate. It's going to be in your life, right? I mean, the principles of this are just manifold. You, you have to understand that God says, you will be holy for I am holy. And God's holy. He wants you to live in holiness. He's given you that ability through his spirit as he has sealed you in Christ at the day of your salvation. And now he's expecting you, like we talked about last week, to walk in his laws, to walk in his perfect laws that he has given us, that we would be fruitful and effective ambassadors of Christ. So, uh, that's not the case, though, in the life of Israel. And I want to bring you to remembrance of one thing. Earlier we talked about Joshua being a, uh, just a leader of covenant remembrance. You see that all throughout this, the book of Joshua. And for the most part, you see a lot of good things happening. But in Judges, you see no covenant remembrance. Over 330 years of history, you see no covenant remembrance. Hundreds of years of people not remembering the Lord, of not retelling the victories of God, of not teaching their kids about God, and of not bringing their children up in the knowledge and fear of the Lord. Uh, and it shows. You've seen those memes, right? You haven't, uh, you haven't followed the Lord for 300 years, and it shows, right? Uh, and that's what you see happening in this. And it's problematic uh, because the practical applications of this are just... Uh, astronomical. I mean, think about this. We live in a country where for a good 50 to 70 years, we don't acknowledge God. Okay. And you're all like, yeah, amen. You live in a home that doesn't acknowledge God. Ouch. Okay. Yes. Right. We, we have to understand that this is going on in our own lives and we must be the people who are acknowledging God in our lives and our marriages and our personal lives among our children's children's. Yeah. Children, <laughs> children, we, have to, we can't be the people who don't remember God's promises and preach those into our hearts every single day. Right? If you think you've outgrown the gospel, you don't understand the gospel because the gospel is for me at salvation, it's for me in sanctification, and it's for me in glorification. If you don't know what those big words mean, it just simply means this. The gospel is for you every day for eternity. And you must preach it to yourself every single day. And when you don't, uh, you can write this down as point number two. You should anticipate consequences when you forget God. Right? Anticipate consequences when you forget God. And that's really what we see over the 300 years of history of, of Judges. It's, hey, there is consequences. When you forget God, you don't follow the Lord. You don't follow his perfect commandments. Uh, you didn't drive the people out when you told them, when, when God said you should. And now what? There'll be thorns in your side. And the same thing in your life. If you're not uh, 
following the Lord, right? If you're not faithful to God, you need to expect and anticipate consequences. Uh, a scripture I want you to jot down, Jeremiah 2.13. Jeremiah 2.13. Jeremiah 2.13 is actually a verse of do-it-yourself. It's a DIY project gone wrong, as a matter of fact. Uh, Jeremiah 2.13 so what God says, this is in the future, this is uh, uh, in the future of Israel. Uh, we're in Judges. This is Jeremiah, which is uh, way later. Uh, but the principle applies, and it says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water. Right? And I'm, I'm the one who has promises. I'm the one who has given them this place. I'm the one who's, who's followed through in all of my commitments and all of my faithfulness to them. But here's the problem. They have forsaken me, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Uh, my wife told me that uh, people probably don't know what a cistern is, but so at least in my context, I'm out from, I'm in the country, uh, and a cistern is just this giant underground water tank, right? You have water towers, they had water unders, uh, and it's just water underground that they had hewn out that you would fill up and store water. And so what we have here is we have people who, instead of trusting the fountain of living water, you see, like, like if you would just come to the fountain, I will give you water whenever you need it. Actually, Jesus uses the same te text to say, anyone who comes to me and who's thirsty, I will give them drink. Right? Anyone who's thirsty, I'm going I'm to be the fountain of living water. It's the same concept. God said, I'm the fountain of living water. I'm a fountain. It doesn't end. You don't have to store the water. I am the water. I, can, I give you all the water forever. But yet Israel, instead of going to the fountain, says, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig my own hole. But here's the problem. They did a DIY project, but it was broken and it couldn't hold water. Like, they had broken cisterns. It could hold no water. The problem is you can anticipate consequences when you forget God, not simply because you think that there's an angry God out there who just wants to do mean things. It's like, no, God says, hey, here's, here's how it works. I'm the fountain of living water. If you go try to hold your own water, you're going to be hewing out DIY projects that aren't going to work. And so when we say you can anticipate consequences when you forget God, it's the reality that there are real social consequences when you forget God. I mean, we, just, we can play it out in uh, your life. Uh, maybe you're a parent here of 50, you're 56 years old, your kids are out of the house, uh, and you forgot God for about 20 or 30 years, and you didn't teach your kids about God. And now one of your biggest prayer requests is, I just pray that my children get saved one day. Why? Because we forgot God for 30 years as we were growing up, and I didn't teach them of the Lord. Well, there are like social consequences when we forget the Lord. It's not just God giving you discipline, which glory to God, God does discipline those he loves, and that is part of it. Uh, but there are just actual consequences when you're not following the patterns of the will of God. Or the same thing happens uh, in marriage, right? Uh, you don't get married, right? You fool around and you get someone pregnant and they have a baby. Guess what? You're, the rest of your life is going to be spent, tr spent trying to figure out what is a good relationship? What is an appropriate relationship? What is the right relationship? How do I teach my children what marriage is because I didn't live that out? You, you, get, you get the point, right? I'm driving at home. There are real practical applications when we're not faithful to the Lord that play out in our lives no matter what. And we have to anticipate consequences when we forget God. It's just part of the life. When we try to do DIY projects and we try to build cisterns for ourselves, we understand they're going to be broken. They're not going to hold water. That's why you need to step out of your own plan and step into God's plan and his faithfulness, his promises. But there are some good news, right? Even in the midst of utter chaos, which is what we see in Judges, really what we see in our life, in our culture today, but there are, there's bright spots. And the bright spots are always where faithfulness is found. And even in the book 
of Judges, there's another book you can insert kind of in the middle of Judges, and it's the book of Ruth, right? The book of Ruth. As a matter of fact, the book of Ruth begins, excuse me, in chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Presumably, there was a famine in the land because of Israel's unfaithfulness, right? I mean, they, that's, this was probably one of the cycles of the issues that Israel was facing, and part of that was there's a famine in the land. So we now go into the book of Ruth, and what we find is uh, Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah had husbands, uh, most likely Elimelech and uh, Naomi and their sons sold their land in Israel because there was a famine going on, and they sold it because they needed money to survive, and they fleed to Moab. And as they were in Moab, uh, Elimelech and Naomi's sons got married to Moabite women, okay? Uh, and uh, then they start making plans to go back to Israel. Now, during this time, all of the men died. Not all the men in the world, but those three men died. And so now you have three widows. Now, the problem with being a widow in this time was land was given to the husbands, right? Uh, the work of the land was given to the husbands, right? The responsibility to take care of the home was given to the Husbands. So now you have these three women who are destitute and desperate, and they have no one to help them. The good news is if they're in Israel, God has laws concerning these things. Right? That's the good news. There's, God had a welfare plan for the nation of Israel, and you can find those two uh, in Leviticus 25, 25, and Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 10. And so you don't have to write those down, but you need to pay attention. You're going to miss all of Ruth. First, in Leviticus 25, 25, there was a promise uh, that God made, a covenant that God made in the laws. It says this, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer, right? You start getting redeemer, kinsman, redeemer, and Ruth. Your nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. So there is this uh, responsibility for the nearest relative to go back and buy the land if the person who sold it, the brother, can't afford it. So there's part of the redeemer process, that there was land that was sold that needs to be given back to the person who sold it to survive. The second one is found in Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10, and it was simply this. It's a thing that we call leveret marriage. And simply put this way, it was God's plan for welfare for people who couldn't take care of themselves, specifically widows. Uh, if uh, I'll just give you a real life example, uh, but put us in the first or BC, so it's not weird. Okay, uh, my wife and I are married in Israel, ancient Israel, uh, and I die. Well, my brothers have to come and carry on my name through childbearing. Okay, and so my brothers have a responsibility through the law of leveret marriage to have a son for me. I'm dead. I can't have a son. They have to go have a son for me. And the first son born from my wife is my child, although I'm dead. And so that child inherits my land and my, and my wealth. You see, it's called welfare, right? It's the way that God had created to where all the families in Israel were taken care of. And so what we see though, is we have Naomi and uh, Ruth, because Orpah had left and gone back to Moab, and Ruth said, listen, I'm following you wherever you go. Your people are going to be my people, and your God's going to be my God. So we already see a great move of faith in the life of Ruth by saying, I forsake my idols, I forsake those gods, I forsake my life, and I turn and I follow the God of Israel. So already, there it is right there, uh, redemption already in her spiritual life. And now they're coming back to uh, Israel to these laws that are there to protect uh, the desperate and destitute 
Uh, and then they get back to Israel, and then you hear Naomi saying, hey, who's that over there? Isn't that Boaz? That man's our close relative. He's one of our redeemers. And so she knew when she goes back that there's kinsmen there, kinsmen redeemers, that could possibly help them out of their problems. And uh, long story really short, Ruth and Naomi uh, hatch a godly plan, nothing wrong with it, to go get the attention of Boaz, and they do it. And Boaz, long story short, says, you know what? I will, but there is a redeemer even closer than I. Basically, there's a re- you have a relative that is in between me and you, and is closer to you that actually has the rights by law to be able to redeem you first. If he won't redeem you, I will come and I will redeem you. And so he goes up to the elders at the front of the gate, which is just law. That's what they had to do. Uh, actually, the person who said no was the one that had to go to the gate, but Boaz, being just just a wonderful man, uh, did it for him. Uh, And so Boaz goes up the front of the gate, does the transaction, then becomes the kinsman redeemer for uh, Ruth and Naomi. And, And the beautiful thing is, now Boaz marries Ruth. They have a baby together. His name is Obed. Obed is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus Christ. And it comes from another pagan woman who was destitute and desperate who didn't have a chance. You see a, do you see a common thread throughout scripture? Like that God is using these people who seem to have all these problems, who seem to can't make it on their own and God redeems them. And you want to notice something else? There's always something sexually in, in a question about these women. Did y'all notice that? Do you want to know why? Because there was something sexually in question about Mary. Okay, and so if there was something sexually in, uh, questionable about Mary, right, the virgin birth, everyone was like, I don't think you're, I think Jesus, I don't think you're a virgin. I think you got in trouble with Joseph. Okay, but then you look at all the women, right? Uh, Tamar, sexually questionable of what she did with her father-in-law. Okay, then you have uh, Rahab, prostitute. Then you have Ruth, destitute had no redeemer, remarried. How is she going to have kids? Boaz is going to have to do it for her, right? So they can have now uh, the land and the promises. And then uh, the wife of Uriah, which was Bathsheba, right? Who King David had taken and slept with, right? All these women had similar issues when it comes to the reproductive department or the, or the, the sexual department. And it just so interesting that so did Mary. What did that prove? That there was nothing that should have disqualified Mary from the promises of God just because you have questions about whether or not she should be there or not. Look at all these other women who shouldn't have been there who were anyway. Amen? Amen. All right. So you see how, see how God, it's just, it's beautiful. The genealogy is beautiful if you would just look at it and say, wow, look at the Lord and look how faithful he is even in the midst of desperation and destitution. Now, before you move on about this kinsman redeemer thing, a lot of people connect the kinsman redeemer to our own kinsman redeemer in Christ. Christ was veiled in flesh and became like us, which is one of the rules about kinsman redeemer is the kinsman redeemer had to be related to the person they couldn't redeem them. And so in the same way, Christ related to us by becoming sinful flesh. And then you had to be able to purchase the, the land. You had to be able to purchase and carry out the process, which means if you were poor and you couldn't afford it, you can't be a kinsman redeemer. But yet we have a God who could afford it, who gave his life and paid the price for us. And you had to have a kinsman redeemer who was willing. Remember the closer redeemer in Ruth wasn't willing to take Ruth, but Boaz was. So you had to be able, you had to be willing, and you had to pay the price. And we have a redeemer who was willing 
and who paid the price for us. You see, this isn't just a story. This is history. This is God's redemptive history played out in real time for you and for me. Hmm, come on. All right, so we see as, as Ruth uh, walks in faith, turns away from her, her life after idols and after uh, her own way, doing her own DIY thing, she turns to God, she walks in faith, uh, marries Boaz, and they have Obed, which Obed is the grandfather of King David. Like, come on. Like, how cool is that? And then uh, Obed, they take a, he lives a good, healthy life, and then we jump into 1 Samuel, which the 1 Samuel is summed up simply this way. Uh, Israel had no king, and Israel said, we want a king, we want a king, and they were foolish because they had a king, and his name was God. Uh, but they wanted a, another king, one they could see and feel and touch and, and, and follow. And so uh, God said, you know what, you're going to get a king. And it's going to be the king who has a heart like yours, and his name was Saul. And so during the life of Obed, Obed uh, begat Jesse, which is the father of uh, King David. And during the time of Jesse, Saul is the king. But Saul did not love the Lord, did not honor the Lord. And as a matter of fact, he sinned against God uh, and was completely deplorable in the sight of the Lord. And uh, God, in uh, chapter 15, verse 11 of 1 Samuel, says that he regretted making Saul king. That he regretted the fact that... Saul was so sinful and so wicked that he regretted making him king. And so as God always does, because he's always had a plan, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 16, this is what it says. The Lord said to Samuel, who Samuel was the last prophet, priest, he was the last judge who was also a priest and prophet. Uh, This is what the Lord said to him. How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? God often always rejects the DIY things that we try to do in our own lives. Instead, he says, fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse. Look at that. That's, just, that's Ruth's great-great-grandson, right? the Bethlehemite. For I have provided for myself a king, right? Which is what we always need to, if you're open to that scripture, or you can write it down, for I have provided for myself a king. That's God's, that is God's MO. He provides himself with what is needed. He provides for his promises. He provides for the needs. He is the provider. I don't have to DIY nothing because God's doing it. He had provided a king for himself among his sons. And despite Israel's disobedience and demanding a king before, God said because there is a promise in Genesis that God will give them a king. And that king, although in this time will be King David, the coming king that was really promised was the king that would sit on the throne forever. And last time I checked, we are going to die, so we can't sit on a throne forever. There was only one king who could live forever on the throne, and he had died, and he was resurrected, and he's eternally at the right hand of the Father, and his name is Jesus. And that's the king that was promised. But yet, we have a lot of history in between that where we see the rise and the fall of some of the kings, which means next week, Lord willing, we'll jump into King David. But before we do that, we need to write down point number three, and it's this, that you need to trust God to provide for his plans. Trust God to provide for his plans. Again, like the preaching point here, God's not here to fulfill your plans. He's here to fulfill his plans. And the only time that we can say, well, God has fulfilled my plans, it's because you are walking in his plans. And you have to remember that. And young ones in here, old ones in here, wherever you are, like understand like God is here to fulfill his plans and he's here to do great and marvelous things in this world through you if you will step into his plans. And if your plans are failing, it's because they're your plans. No plan of God's will fail. And that's why it's so imperative and important that as you walk out of here, you're going to you commit to walking in the plan of the Lord. I 
put it this way. Uh, say you're going to be a business owner, but you're a terrible business owner. And you already knew this, like up front, right? Like you have to start a business, but you also know you're terrible. As a matter of fact, you've started eight businesses and all of them have failed. Okay. And so that's really your prospects. You're a failed business owner. Uh, which is where most of us sit in our spiritual life anyway, all of us, as a matter of fact. Uh, But then there's another prospect that comes by and says, hey, there is a CEO of a Fortune 500 company who has successfully created hundreds of businesses and they're all super successful. You have the opportunity to work for him or have your own business. Which one are you going to pick? That one, all right? It's the same concept in your life. Like you have the opportunity to do a DIY project that you know you're spiritually gonna fail every single time or you have the opportunity to step into the workplace of the perfect majestic God who's always, always on time, always perfect and always fulfills his promises and if you will just step into his will, into his work, it's going to succeed, right? That's the promise that we have in Christ as children of the Lord, right? And you want to know where this genealogy ends up? It doesn't end at Jesus. Every child is a child of Abraham who is spiritually a child of Abraham through Christ. And so that's why we talk about the genealogy, because it may start at Abraham or even a little bit before Abraham, and it may get to Jesus, but it's everyone who's turned away from their sins and placed their trust in Christ is a part of the family tree of God, which is the good news that we have. And you just need to simply know this, that God has his plan on lock, right? That's a young people thing, I think, right? That God has his plan completely in grasp. He's gonna provide for it. And the reality that we have is that if we just step into his will, we can be a part of that plan. And then because of that, we're gonna be able to grow to have ultimate faith in his plan. Let's pray. God, thank you so much, uh, God, that you have a plan that it's, that's laid before us, that, that the only uh, really responsibility we have is to look at that plan and respond to it. At first, through turning from our own sin and trusting in the substitution of Christ on the cross, that part of that plan was there had to be a sacrifice. As Hebrews even says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And as we have already talked about, we see it uh, even in the Exodus and the Passover, that there had to be a penalty for the sin in Egypt and the lamb was slaughtered and anyone who put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost that you would pass over their sins and you would not count it against them. And anyone who did not have that blood on their home, God, they would perish. Their firstborns would all would perish. It's the same principle we see over and over again in scripture. God, that you have made a way for the sinful to be made righteous and for the righteous in Christ to walk in faith, trusting in you. And I just pray, God, as, uh, as we even sit in this teaching, we sit in the series that our faith has grown that our trust in you is is undergirded with this great belief that you're gonna do wonderful things uh, for your will. You're gonna do wonderful things for your name and for your glory. And that God, if we would just step out into those promises that you have made, like Rahab, God, like Ruth, uh, people who were following their own way, following other gods in other nations, that they turned away from those things. God, they trusted in you. They turned away from their idols and they followed you. God, if we would just do that, that for all of us in here, maybe those who aren't even saved, they would just understand that's the way to salvation, to turn away from your idols, turn away from your sin, repent and trust in the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our God. And God, for the rest of us, is to continue walking in step with your spirit as you are leading us and guiding us and that we would uh, submit in all things to you. We pray that in Christ's name, amen.